Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the tent of the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people, will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will not be remembered. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more cut go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires, and I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires, fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Amen. It's God's word. Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, 
Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. May God bless to us that further reading from his word and to his name be the praise. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, we ask that you would honour that promise in our midst this evening, that your word would not return to you empty, and for our part, we pray that we may respond to it in faith and in obedience. For your glory's sake. Amen. Does the church have a future? And should it matter to you and to me? The church in the Western world is shrinking rapidly. Recently I read a statistic that the Church of Scotland is losing something like 300 members per week. Many people live their lives quite happily without a thought for the church. As they see it, the church is utterly irrelevant. So does the church have a future? And does it matter? I think the two chapters we're looking at this evening have something to say to us 
in response to both of these questions. In recent weeks, we've seen how the, the, the prophet Isaiah lived in the middle of the 8th century B.C. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sought to prepare the people of Israel for the challenges which were going to come their way some 200 years later, when the powerful Babylonians conquered their land, destroyed their temple, and carried many of them off to exile in faraway Babylon. The Israelites were the covenant people of God. They were bound to be devastated to find themselves in exile, far from the land God had given them centuries before. Isaiah wanted the Israelites to know that in due course they would go back to their own land and the temple would be rebuilt. God hadn't given up on them. He was still personally committed to them. The exile was his judgment on their sin. But he would in due course forgive them and bring them back. Isaiah's message is that God still has great plans for his people. But it becomes clear from Isaiah's prophecy that the restoration of the Israelites to their land is only the, the first installment, as it were, of God's plans. God has even bigger plans to fulfill. He plans to establish a worldwide family to bring people from all the nations into relationship with himself and to be recognized as God of the whole earth. He declares through Isaiah, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. But how is this going to be achieved? The people of Israel should have been a light to the nations, but they were compromised on account of their sin. They were incapable of living up to what it meant to be the people of God. They needed to be redeemed themselves. In a series of songs, Isaiah focuses in on a servant who will implement the Lord's purposes. He will be the Lord's servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. And he will also be a light for the nations that God's salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. The fourth and last of these servant songs, which Roger preached on last week, speaks of the servant's humiliation and death. He dies a voluntary, undeserved death on behalf of others. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant bears the iniquities of many, and he makes many to be accounted righteous. And his sacrificial death is not the end. He emerges a conquering hero and shares the benefits of his death with all those for whom he died. The moving words of Isaiah chapter 53 are a remarkable prophecy of the death of Jesus. He came into this world to pay the punishment for sin and win forgiveness and acceptance for all who trust him, both Jew and Gentile. He lived the life we ought to have lived, and he died the death we deserve to die. He was our representative. He was our substitute. He took our sin upon himself, so that we might receive his righteousness. That great exchange lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel. That's why Horatius Bonner wrote, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. As the Lord's suffering servant, Jesus has done all that's needed for the creation of God's worldwide family. On the basis of what he has done, salvation is offered freely to everyone. He has achieved all that's required. We cannot contribute anything to our own salvation. I think it was Archbishop Temple who said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we must be delivered. All we need to do is to accept the salvation which Jesus offers. We need to respond appropriately. That's essentially what these two chapters are about. Let's look at them then under the headings Achievement and response. First of all, then, achievement. In chapter 54, Isaiah describes the servant's achievement using three pictures. In verses 1 to 5, we have the picture of a family, a miracle family. In verses 6 to 10, we have the picture of a restored marriage. And in verses 11 to 17, the picture of an impregnable city. The prophet is using picture language to convey profound truths. A miracle family, a restored marriage, an impregnable city. Let's look at each of these in turn. The first picture is of a miracle family. Isaiah addresses the people of God as if they were a barren woman, a woman who has never given birth. 
In the culture of Isaiah's day, a woman who had no family had little standing in her community. But Isaiah urges the woman to burst into song. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Why? Because the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. You see, this childless woman is going to have a huge family. She's going to end up with children all over the world. Isaiah urges her to extend her tent in anticipation. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. This worldwide family will come about by supernatural means. The woman is widowed. That's what it says in verse 4. She's in no position to have a family by natural means. It's God who is going to give her a miracle family. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Latterly, the Israelites have made a mess of being the people of God. Like a barren woman, they command little respect. They're disgraced and discredited. But God has plans to bring into being a worldwide family consisting of both Jew and Gentile. Membership will no longer be closely tied to physical birth. His covenant people will be born from above as his spirit works in their hearts to bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Such a miracle family is possible only on the basis of what the suffering servant achieved. A miracle family Isaiah's second picture in verses 6 to 10 is that of a restored marriage. He compares the people of God to a wife whose marriage has broken down on account of her unfaithfulness. Her husband has left her and she's deeply upset. But she's given a second chance. Her husband has compassion on her. His love overcomes his displeasure. And he decides to have her back and make, make a success of this restored relationship. It was an account of his people's unfaithfulness to him that the Lord allowed the Israelites to go into exile. They were unfaithful and they suffered the consequences. But because of all the suffering servant has done, sin and guilt can be atoned for and reconciliation is possible. God's people now have a glorious future. The Lord uses emotional language as he assures them. For a brief moment, I deserted you. 
but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. And this time it will be forever. The Lord recalls how he promised Noah when the flood subsided that he would never again send a flood that would cover the entire earth. In a similar way, he now promises never again to be angry with his people. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The renewed covenant between God and his people is for keeps. And it's a covenant of peace achieved by nothing less than the death of God's Son. A miracle family, a restored marriage. The third picture which we have in verses 11 to 17 is that of an impregnable city. Recently the city has been storm-tossed and buffeted by enemies, but these days are past. Now she's about to become a city of dazzling splendor. She will be rebuilt with the finest materials. Her foundations will be laid with sapphires. Her pinnacles will be made of agate her gates of carbuncles, her wall of precious stones. I wonder if that reminds you of anything. If you know your Bibles, it should, because similar language is used in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John describes the new Jerusalem, the church of the redeemed in glory. Let me highlight three things in particular regarding this city. Number one, the city is established in righteousness. Verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established. Righteousness is the rock foundation on which the city is built. And that's thanks to the suffering servant. He is described in the previous chapter as the righteous one. And he in turn makes many others to be accounted righteous. His completed work of salvation is the foundation of the church. As the Apostle Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Number two, the citizens of the city are taught by the Lord. Verse 13, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. It's God's grace at work in the citizens of the city by his Spirit that enables them to live in accordance with his standards. And as a result, they enjoy peace, complete well-being. In our fallen world, we often think of righteousness as boring. Imagine a city full of goody-goodies. 
But in actual fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We were made to live in accordance with God's standards. We were made to give him glory. And it's only when we do so that we will enjoy real peace. Number three, the city is impregnable. The Lord promises to protect his people from all harm. He is their sovereign protector. Any enemy who dares to attack his people will be defeated. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Jesus said something similar when he promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. On account of Jesus' achievement on the cross, God's people are eternally secure. So does the church have a future? Isaiah assures us she has. Of course, the future of the church in any one particular location may not be guaranteed, but the church as a whole will survive and prosper. She is the creation of Almighty God. She is the object of His steadfast love. She is protected by His mighty power. We are privileged to look back on the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we can see how the church is His achievement. The church is the outworking of all he did as the Lord's suffering servant. And for that reason, the church unquestionably has a future. Chapter 54 then underscores the achievement of the suffering servant we read about in chapter 53. We cannot add to his achievement. But we need to respond to what he has done. And so we turn to chapter 55 under the heading response. This chapter begins with a series of invitations. There's a party going on or possibly street vendors are offering food and drink for nothing. Either way, food and drink are freely available. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God is inviting those who are thirsty, those who have no money, to come and receive the abundant blessings which he offers. Poverty is no bar. He provides all that's needed. In fact, he offers to make an everlasting covenant with all who respond to his invitation. They will live under the beneficent rule of his king, finding life in all its fullness, in his eternal kingdom. Verse 12, you shall go out in joy 
and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Even the natural order will share in the joy of the people of God. In New Testament terms, this is an invitation to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. These blessings are freely available to all who are willing to receive them. You'd think an invitation like that would be a no-brainer. Who in their right mind wouldn't jump at the chance But notice how through his prophet the Lord pleads with those who prefer to squander the meager resources they have on food which doesn't satisfy. That may seem perverse, and it is, but it is realistic. So many people choose to be lost in their sin rather than receive the salvation that is offered to them. In Jesus. It isn't easy to acknowledge you're thirsty. It isn't easy to acknowledge you're a spiritual bankrupt. It requires humility to accept gratefully gifts you cannot begin to pay for. We mustn't let pride stand in the way of our accepting God's invitation. Let's face up to our spiritual thirst, our spiritual poverty, our spiritual confusion. Let's respond positively. As we go through the chapter, we see that accepting the invitation involves two things in particular. First, it involves listening to the Lord and coming to him. Look at what the Lord says in verses 2 and 3. Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. We need to listen to what God is saying. When he was tempted by the devil, Jesus did not give in. Instead, he quoted words from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's not forget that. We need physical food to sustain our physical lives, but we need God's word to feed our souls. That's why reading and explaining the Bible is such an important part of our services week by week. The other thing involved in accepting God's invitation is repentance. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We're all by nature sinners who rebel against God and want to go our own way. 
We need to turn from going our own way and be willing to go God's way. For although we come to God as we are, we come not to stay as we are. We need to recognize our sin for what it is. We need to turn from it and cast ourselves in God's mercy. God's willingness to forgive is not in doubt. He's a compassionate God. The question is, are we willing to forsake our sin and receive his mercy? Notice how we're told to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. That suggests, doesn't it, that the opportunity for responding may be limited. It implies a degree of urgency. God may not always be found so readily. He may not always be as near to you and to me as he is this evening. The opportunity may be lost. After all, the invitation is his, it's God, is God's, and he's free to withdraw it. For that reason, it's foolish to delay. The offer of salvation should never be despised or rejected. For the opportunity for any one of us may end at any moment. Verses 8 and 9 heighten the sense of urgency. Look at what the Lord says there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Notice what God is doing here. He's drawing attention to the distance there is between himself and sinful humanity. He's an incomparably great God. We cannot begin to understand how great he is. His call to repentance needs to be seen against the infinite gulf that stands between us and him. It makes sense to make peace with such a great God. So can I ask you this evening, where do you stand in relation to this transcendent God? One thing is sure, whether we accept God's gracious invitation or not, there will be a response. Divine sovereignty will ensure that. The Lord declares through Isaiah that his word will not prove fruitless. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So does the future of the church matter to you and to me? If it doesn't, it should. Because in essence, the church is the community of God's people. God's people accept his invitation to receive the blessings which he offers in the Lord Jesus. God's people are those who listen to him and come to him as repentant sinners. Can I ask you, do you belong to their number? 
The church has a glorious future which is guaranteed. And the offer to each one of us is to come and be part of it. As we close, let me remind you of words written by the converted slave trader John Newton. Saviour, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Shall we pray? O Lord, we thank you for the assurance that your church has a future. And we pray that each of us here this evening might book our place in that company which will enjoy fellowship with you to all eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.